Good morning, Grace family. Today I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. And it says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I wanted to spend some time on this Father's Day thanking and honoring those of you who serve as fathers in your family. You bear an amazing responsibility and one that biblically is described of as helping people understand what God is like. What an amazing and awesome weight that you carry. I mean, think about what Jesus tells us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. For those of you who are dads, you are helping to craft a picture of what God is like in your kids' minds, in the way that you love them, care for them, provide for them, and even discipline them. Who of us could be up for such a task as that? I feel so often as a dad that I have robbed my kids of a more accurate picture of God as I realize how much I fail in so many of the qualities that I just described. And, you know, if a hundred is the perfect dad and zero is the awful dad, you know, we're all somewhere in the middle, but we're all looking up at what could be. And on this Father's Day, I imagine a lot of people are uh, hauntingly aware of their own shortcomings in this area, either for themselves as a dad or the shortcomings of what their dad failed to give them as well. It's because of these shortcomings that I thought the topic of forgiveness would be so important on Father's Day. And so we're continuing this series on the law of Jesus with looking at how Jesus talked about the law of forgiveness. In our passage today here from Matthew 18, we're going to see how Jesus describes the necessity of forgiveness for forgiven people. In this passage, Jesus lays out a parable, a story, of someone who has been forgiven much and yet refuses to forgive, and the consequences that, co- that come with that stubbornness. For those of us who are dads, those of us who are children of a father, those of us just who are in relationship with anyone, this is a, an important passage, an important law for us to consider. If you have been forgiven much, 
And if you're a Christian, you have been. How do you forgive in response to that? Well, let's go to the passage today in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 23 uh, as Jesus lays out this parable. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. In the beginning of the story, Jesus sets up this almost absurd scenario where one of the king's servants is in the most debt imaginable. 10,000 talents. A, A talent was a hypothetical unit of money. And by that I mean there's no coin that represented a talent. And here's why. A talent was the most a soldier could carry of gold or silver. It's probably somewhere around 75 pounds worth. 75 pounds of gold times 10,000. I don't know if you've ever felt the nakedness of showing up when you were a student to school and you didn't have the paper you were supposed to turn in or you hadn't studied for the test or you just knew your name was going to be called and you were going to have nothing to say. Now imagine the day comes when you're supposed to turn in 10,000 talents of gold. You need to show up with an army of soldiers carrying the money with you. 10,000 people and you show up with one carrying nothing. This is the sort of absurd nakedness that Jesus is describing for this servant. The time comes for him to pay up and it's not that he's a little short or that he didn't quite make it, or if he had a little more time, it'd be okay. He's absurdly, profoundly deficient in what's needed. And so the consequences come for him. In verse 25, it says, And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, just as an aside here, Um, I know that seems very foreign and very uh, unfair about this concept of his family being sold into slavery. I agree with you. I think Jesus would have agreed with you. But in this cultural context, that's what would have happened in a story like this. In verse 26, the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's a a nice offer, I suppose, but how long is it going to take you to make 10,000 talents of gold? How many lifetimes does it take? I mean, if, if you want to put a round number on this, you'd say one talent was worth uh, about a million dollars. 10,000 times one million, about $10 billion. How do you get $10 billion into debt? How do you, get, how do you not follow through on $10 billion of a lack of resources that you promised you would have. This is so far beyond the pale of what's possible to repay. And in that parable, Jesus, I think, is teaching us something very important about our relationship with God. See, the reason that Jesus is telling the story and he's highlighting these characters is to show us how profoundly we have been forgiven as well. And Jesus is saying our debt before God for all of us is even greater than $10 billion. We've been forgiven even more than that because hypothetically someone could make $10 billion, but none of us, no person alive today or at any point in the past, could make up for our sins against a holy God. We are actually in a worse situation than the man in the story. 
But then something changes about the servant's situation. It's not what he does, it's not what he promises, but it's about how the king sees him. This is in verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. I just want to take a minute on that word, out of pity for him. Some of your translations might say, he felt compassion for him. Um, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful word that is prominent in the Gospels. In Greek, it's the word splangnitsomai. Uh, I was practicing how to pronounce that all week to try to get it right. Splangnitsomai. And literally means his, his heart is going out towards the other. Pity in our culture sometimes has a, an aspect of disdain to it. Like, I, I pity you, I don't want to be near you, but here's something just to get you off my back. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying his, his heart moved towards the person. The king felt in the depths of who he was a desire to reach out to him and to help this man. This is a word Jesus uses often. It's the word that he uses in the parable of the prodigal son. When the father sees his uh, derelict son returning home, it says in that passage in Luke 15 that the, the father felt compassion. He splagnitsomai in that case as well and ran out towards him. It's the same word that Jesus uh, is described as feeling towards the man who has leprosy and the man who was born blind. He felt compassion on them and then helped them. It's the same word that uh, Jesus uses when he sees the crowds before he feeds the 5,000. Or it's the same word that's used of Jesus when he sees the crowds and says they are like a, a field ripe for harvest. He feels compassion on them. The reason I'm spending time on this is because I really want you to know that that's how God sees you and how Jesus sees you. He has compassion on you. His heart goes out to the despair that all of us are in without Christ. It's not out of pity. It's not out of disdain. It's not out of anger. But it's out of compassion and love for you and for me. I mean, after all, if a king can be compassionate towards someone who has a $10 billion dereliction of duty and debt, maybe he can be compassionate towards you as well. If, if Jesus is saying, just as a king could forgive someone who has failed in every way towards them. Maybe the king of heaven can feel compassion for you and me as well. I imagine that for some people listening today, there is a deep sense of shame about how you've been as a dad, or maybe how you've been as a friend, or how you've been towards your dad. You feel like you have failed in profound ways that could never be forgiven. I know that's a heavy weight to bear. And what I can confidently say in light of Scripture is that God has compassion even on the greatest of debts. There is no one who is beyond God's love and his compassion and his heart for, who he doesn't reach out towards with that love to save. And as a result of that, the man's debt is wiped clean. Compassion, um, even in the most costly circumstances, can wipe the debt away from what this man has incurred. Now, when I say the debt is forgiven, I don't mean the debt is erased. It's not that the debt is gone. It's only gone from this man's books. As uh, Paul would write in Colossians 2.14, it says that he canceled the record of the charges against us 
and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I love that verse because it shows that Jesus has taken away our debts, but he's taken them away by taking them on himself. You know who lost $10 billion that day? The king did. It's not that the money failed to exist anymore. It's just that he was now the one who bore that brunt on himself. I think this is really important on a day like Father's Day for us to remember. Because God, as our Father, models not just an erasure of our debts, but a taking on on himself and on his son, Jesus Christ, the debts that we have incurred. Sometimes in our earthly relationships with our fathers or with our families, we can uh, be reminded that nothing is ever truly forgiven or forgotten. In an inverse of 1 Corinthians 13, we can keep a record of wrongs. We can remind one another of the things that have been done in the past. But with God, there is a, as the psalmist says, a removal of our sins as far as the east is from the west. That he has taken our sins away from us. I imagine when the servant leaves the room in this parable, he leaves shouting like people do on the Dave Ramsey show, I'm debt free! I'm debt free! And I don't know what it would have been like for him to go home that day and to talk to his wife if he was married or his kids. And I know it's a parable, so it's all hypothetical, but let's just go with it for a second. What it would have been like to look at the things in his house and say, I actually own this now. Like I, it's not that everything I own is going to one day have to go to the king. It's not that I, I can hug my kids not being afraid that they're going to go into slavery. I, I can earn money and know that it'll stay in our family. The freedom that would have come from that. I hope that in that joy, we can see a glimpse of what it means that our sins are forgiven as well. That in Christ, we have been made wholly new. And it is a better thing than to have $10 billion of debt forgiven. But of course, that's not the only point of this story. In fact, this is just the first scene that sets up the rest of the story. Because the servant, while perhaps he was grateful for what has happened to him, has not internalized what it means to be a person of grace. While he has been the recipient of grace, we see very quickly that he is not willing to be the giver of grace. Look at verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Real quick, how much is a hundred denarii? And I I just want to mention this because some translations will choose to render this as a few dollars. I, I don't think that's helpful. A denarii was how much a laborer made after a day's worth of work. So a hundred denarii was the work that the amount of money you'd earn after about four months' worth of work. I don't know if you've ever been, had someone owe you four months' worth of payroll, but that's a lot of money. I mean, let's say the average laborer in our context makes $100, $150 a day or so. We're talking about ten dollars to $15,000. If somebody owed me $15,000, I would like to talk about a repayment plan, right? And it's a lot of money. And so from a human level, we can understand why this man is eager to be repaid. But from a a spiritual level, it's so striking that this person who has been forgiven much refuses to even consider how someone would be in the same place as he was. And hopefully what is about to be said in verse 29 would jog his memory. 
Look at verse 29. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is almost, almost word for word what the first servant said to the king. See, Miroslav Wolf said that um, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I love that line. Let me repeat it again because I know it's a little hard to follow at first. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. What Wolf is saying is that when we fail to forgive, it's often because we don't see ourselves and the other person as part of the same situation. This first servant fails to forgive or is even unwilling to consider forgiving because he doesn't see himself and the other person in the same light. And we can give all kinds of reasons why to ourselves, right? To rationalize to ourselves like, well, I just had some bad luck. That's why I got into debt. But he was foolish and lazy, I, I got in this situation not because of my fault, but just because of some stuff that happened to me. But he should have known better. How many of us as dads have made that same sort of foolish and failed rationale? My kids are only doing this because they're being obstinate. My kids are acting like this because they're being uh, disobedient. My kids are doing this to test my buttons. Right? As opposed to saying, I am just as obstinate, just as foolish, and just as disobedient to my parents growing up, and worse, towards my God. I have been forgiven much, and I want to be a father who's quick to forgive as well. Proverbs 19, 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and his glory to overlook an offense. Man, I wish that was on my Father's Day card one day. Don't you? Don't you wish that one day your kids will say, Dad, I saw in you someone who is slow to anger, and quick to overlook an offense. Not that you failed to discipline me in a way that helped me, not that you failed to point out a way of righteousness, but that you didn't lead out of a place of anger, you didn't lead out of a place of causing great offense. We see in verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This word uh, translated refused in verse 30 literally means he chose not to. He heard the man's plea for mercy, and he chose not to. He withheld what had been freely offered to him, even though it was going to cost him far less than what it had cost the king to forgive him. He chose not to. This gets into the, the volitional nature of forgiveness. Your choice and my choice of will we choose to be forgiving people? Do we want to live in the realm of grace? Or do we want to live in the realm of justice? In Ephesians 4, 32, Paul makes the point really clearly. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If you want to be part of Jesus' people, it means you're part of a grace people, a forgiving people. It means that you know that you've been forgiven, and so you're willing to forgive others. And that's what we're called to be like as brothers and sisters in the church. After all, that's the context of Matthew 18 is what's the church supposed to be like and how should the church treat sin? It should treat it with sacredness and importance and it should root it out and confront it. 
but it also needs to be quick and effusive and abundant in forgiveness. And we're called to be forgiving people in our families with our spouses and our children and our roommates and our friends. And I hope that our church, Grace, would be known in that sort of way, that we would be known as a people of forgiveness. Because if we're not, if we choose to live in the realm of justice rather than grace, we see the consequences that come in verse 31. The unforgiving servant hasn't made the connection that how he's treated this fellow servant will be a consequence in his own life. In verse 31, it says, When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And now the king's emotion changes from compassion to anger in verse 34. Verse 34, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, what a sobering verse to hear and to think about. It reminds me of in the Lord's Prayer where we're taught to pray, forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. This is sometimes called by theologians the law of retaliation. The idea that in Jesus' worldview, in Jesus' theology, in Jesus' kingdom, we are judged by our willingness or unwillingness to internalize the way that God has treated us. If we internalize the fact that he's been gracious to us and treat others in the same way, then that is how God treats us. Now, let me, let me just stop here for a second before we get too concerned and too worried. This, this all comes under the context of God's grace and under the context of the overall teaching of the New Testament. It's not that we earn our way to God's forgiveness by forgiving others, but it's that we demonstrate that we know we have been forgiven in the way that we treat people around us. And for Jesus, um, he says that because you have been forgiven much, and haven't you? Haven't I? I mean, think of all the stupid things you have done in the last year. Think of all the stupid things you've said since quarantine started. And if you have been forgiven much, shouldn't you be quick to forgive those around you? Now, of course, this should not be used as a sword in your families or in your homes or with friends. And by that I mean, you should not be quick to remind others that they need to forgive you. After all, forgiveness is never something that can be insisted upon or demanded of another. It's something that has to be freely given. So we can't say, I deserve your forgiveness. That's a foolish phrase to say. But I can say, I'm quick to offer my forgiveness. Now, also, one other disclaimer on this. When we talk about forgiveness in the New Testament, or in the Bible as a whole, we're talking about a, a complex and important topic that interrelates with important themes of justice and wise living and what it means to be a community in a way that's really important and really beautiful, but it's not uh, two-dimensional. There, there's a lot of texture to forgiveness. And if you want to read more about this, there's a great book from David Augsburger called Caring Enough to Forgive and Caring Enough Not to Forgive. It'll help you think through the theology of forgiveness. We can talk more about it tomorrow during life from Pastor Bob if you want. Well, I, 
I really want for you, at the end of this sermon, the end of this Father's Day message, to carefully consider whether you have been a forgiving voice in your family. If you're a dad, have you been quick to demonstrate and model forgiveness for your kids? If you're in a relationship with your father, or maybe especially if you're estranged from your father, what is God calling you to model in terms of how you forgive? Or just for any of, a, any of us who are in friendships or romantic relationships or neighborhood relationships, are you known as a forgiving person? Have you modeled the way that you've been forgiven and how you treat others? Or are you someone who cuts the edges off forgiveness? Are you someone who finds ways to make people pay on the back end? You figure out ways to, to warn others about them, to hold what they've done against you, against other, that you find ways to hold against them in the eyes of other people what they've done towards you. Have you found ways to cut the edge off of forgiveness through slander or libel? Have you figured out a way to, to withdraw from them just enough to show that you haven't forgotten what they've done? Figure out a way to just show how horrible you think they really are while outwardly putting a smile on it. If that's how you've treated forgiveness, I really want you to think afresh about what it means that Christ has forgiven you. As we come to the communion table in a little bit, we take communion as a reminder of sins forgiven, taken completely away, a $10 billion debt removed. In the same way, how can we forgive those that God has put in our lives, in our pathways, this week, and this year? How do you want to be treated by God? Do you want to be forgiven, or do you want to be in the realm of the law? Let's pray. God, you have forgiven us much, too much, for us to even acknowledge or count or even be aware of at times. You have, given, you have forgiven us more than $10 billion worth. And God, when we act like our sin is small, like we haven't done much that needs forgiving, we can become vitriolic and angry towards people around us. But God, we know that you in Christ have forgiven a great debt in each of our lives. God, may you make us a church full of quick-to-forgive people people who don't keep a record of wrongs, people who don't slander or gossip about one another, people who don't cut each other out of our lives because of what wounds we foster and fester. God, make us a church worthy of our name as people of grace because you have been gracious to us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.